touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and today I have a special guest in the studio with me, Ruben Medina. How are you, Ruben? I'm good. I'm here. I'm live in the studio. Yeah, uh, Ruben is a is a friend of mine. He's a local performer here in Atlanta, an improvisational genius. Whoa, now. Okay. Expectations. He's an improvisational performer. There we go. With moments of genius, and uh, Ruben's also written for video game outlets. We often have conversations online just about like issues in the video game world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is absolutely true. We'll just sit there and say like, oh man, it's crazy, isn't it? And then uh, we're like, yeah, I can't believe that uh, Polygon gave that a 6.5 when clearly it was a 7.4 at least. What's that about? Get it together, <laughs> game journalists. <laughs> but uh, I, let, I, let, I wanted Ruben to come onto the show and I gave him, of course, the opportunity to choose whatever topic he wanted to talk about. And uh, you really wanted to talk about virtual reality. Yeah, to escape my own perilous and terrible life. I can totally understand <laughs> that. Uh, I mean, we uh, that has been the promise of virtual reality ever since we first heard the term. Do you remember uh, you know, approximately when you first heard about virtual reality? Jeez. Um, so I guess for reference, like I'm 28. So one of the first times I can, uh, I don't know, probably like Lawnmower Man or Johnny Mnemonic is yeah. one of the first pop culture Sure. References I really saw to it. Yeah, Lawnmower Man was like, that was like the thing that totally destroyed virtual reality, uh, in a way. Because the, well, one, come on, it's Lawnmower Man, it's a terrible movie. But two. Whoa, hey, no, oh yeah, you're, <laughs> you're, you're completely right. No, it's awesome in its own way. Mm-hmm. It's just not well made. It's still entertaining, just not the way it was necessarily intended to be. And relative to Johnny Mnemonic, I mean, you yeah, can't even. That's true. We're, we're talking, you know, in comparison, but Keanu Reeves, a dolphin, iced tea, yeah, versus Lawnmower Man, yeah, yeah. Can't, I mean, can't beat that. That's that's a tough competition, any way you slice <laughs> it. But it, the issue, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, was that uh, the reality of what virtual reality was was capable of doing mm-hmm. versus what it was being depicted as doing was totally different. Yeah. Um, personally, I remember hearing about virtual reality in the early '90s. Uh, I grew up in '70s and '80s, and I, but I remember by the early '90s, a teenager. And uh, even one of the malls here in the metro Atlanta area had a small virtual reality game center where you would go in, stand on a platform, have a 50-pound head-mounted display put down on you. It was actually suspended by cables because it was too heavy to put on just kids. And then you would uh, make yourself feel nauseated as you played against polygon pterodactyls. <laughs> That flew and looked nothing like anything that ever really existed ever. Dinosaur adventure. Yeah. But every dinosaur is just a couple triangles. Yeah. It was pretty much, that was it. And then you had a little, a uh, little, uh, kind of prism looking like gun that fired perfect cube bullets. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty limited, but it showed what the promise of virtual, virtual reality could be. And I think a lot of people focused more on the limitations than on the, um, the actual potential for the technology, and that really set the entire industry back. But just as a quick overview of the actual history, not just our personal history, you know, the basic concept is pretty simple. It's the idea of creating a virtual environment that mimics a physical environment so that the person who is in whatever setup you're using feels as if they're in a real place, but it's all virtual representation. 
So uh, two very important concepts with this are immersion, which is your sense of being in that space, and interactivity, which is your ability to manipulate things within that space. So if you don't feel immersion, then there's no illusion that you are in this environment and it all kind of falls apart. And if you don't have interaction, then it's like you are in a an immersive movie, but you have no agency. You have no ability to affect the things around you. Even more than than it's sort of disconnecting when uh, when you don't have that one to one ratio of your own movement and immersion happening, it, it it can be completely disorienting. Oh yeah, a big issue of VR is uh, when you have that lag. It can be what causes when people get really sick from it. That's a major issue that happens. Oh sure, yeah. Latency is a terrible problem. I've I've had that experience as well. In fact, I had it with that. Uh, pterodactyl based game. And that was, you know, super simple graphics. So there's very low latency, but it was still enough where, uh, it doesn't take much for humans to pick up on it. We're talking on the millisecond frame rate, like something like 60 milliseconds, anything more than that, you can start to kind of feel it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the big challenges of the Oculus Rift was to bring that latency number down as far as possible. Uh, but then, you know, I've even used the Oculus Rift. And while the latency wasn't so bad, there was a disconnect in the interface that made me feel a little swimmy. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, too. So we've got some interesting examples of precursors to the what we consider the typical virtual reality gear. And I love that you pulled these up in your research, uh, going all the way back to the 19th century here. Yeah, we're talking um, 1838, uh, the Wheatstone stereoscope. A stereoscope uh, technology is a major, major component to virtual reality. Um, it's still being used, I believe, in Oculus Rift, the current iterations, to make that 3D immersive experience. Uh, and so we had these, uh, like the Wheatstone stereoscope, it was basically a pair of giant mirrors at 45 degree angles that would make a stereoscopic image. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had this uh, sort of going on until we got the Holmes stereoscope in 1861, which was a handheld version. Uh, and it looks, you can see photos of it online, it looks very, very similar to sort of a steampunk wooden version of a virtual boy. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's a little mobile handheld, handheld put it on your face sort of interface. Uh, except I would imagine, I don't know, maybe the headache is quite as bad as Virtual Boy. I sure hope not. Man, did you ever play with one of those? Uh, yeah, and yeah. it was heinous. <laughs> right, although it did introduce the world to Wario. Which so. is great. I yeah. mean, Wario Mario Tennis, I think, was yeah. on there, yeah. but it also made your eyes bleed. Yeah, no, not not the most pleasant of user experiences. Yeah, and stereoscopic effect is, is pretty cool because uh, there's a technological element, but the really important step is all done by your brain mm-hmm. because it's it's your eyes getting two slightly different images and then your brain combining that to create the, the what you perceive as a three dimensional space. Yeah. It's the same sort of principle that comes out of uh, 3D movies, the mm-hmm. idea that you're, you're getting just slightly different views to kind of mimic what you would get with parallax. That's where your eyes converge on a point and you get that sense of depth. So super interesting. And then uh, 1960, you've got uh, the telesphere mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this guy, Mort uh, Heilig, uh, he created this. Uh, it's a stereoscopic 3D TV with stereo sound and wide vision display. And it's probably the first thing that I found that's uh, similar to the head mounted displays we're kind of more used to in looking at uh, Project Orpheus or sorry, Project Morpheus, rather. Yeah. And uh, Oculus Rift. Um, and then, uh, he, two years later, the same guy makes this thing, the Sensorama, which is an arcade style 3D, 
uh, cabinet with a vibrating seat and scent producer. Um, it reminds me of a lot of, uh, there is Disney rides that, yeah. there's an alien Disney ride actually yep. that you would sit in this theater and there was 3D, but they would like, you would have water splashed on you when the aliens were crawling around. Sure. Little like rubber tubes would hit your legs to right. freak you out. It's right. that sort of full immersion. Same sort of thing with, uh, they have the, it's tough to be a bug, uh, movie that's in the animal kingdom, mm. Disney animal kingdom. Same sort of stuff where it comes complete with the three dimensional movie. You get the sense, like when the stink bug does his thing. Mm-hmm. You get a nice uh, waft of a suitably stinky but Disney-fied stinky smell. <laughs> you hope it's the ride doing it. Yeah, yeah. You, you're hope <laughs> you're hopeful that you know that that churro that your your kid ate is not what's causing the problem. Uh, and they even had um, uh, things under like incorporate in the benches you sit in, hmm. so that when the wasps attack, a little thing pokes you in the back or. At the very, very end, when all the lights have gone down and you haven't been, you know, they haven't come up so you can get up and walk away yet, uh, little things directly under the seat, like under your butt, move so it's supposed to be all the cockroaches. Oh, man. Yeah. It's a little creepy. Yeah, but, pr- probably. but, you know, it is very immersive. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifyingly immersive. Right. And then we have Ivan Sutherland who created uh, the Sketchpad. Mm. So, yeah, the, yeah, I like this note you have, too, about the... The precursor to CAD programs, computer-assisted design programs, and or computer-aided design, depends on who's spelling out the acronym. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the graphic user interface are derived from this as well. Uh, it's, this is one of those things that ended up making a huge impact on computing in general, not just virtual reality, but really the way that we interact with our devices today. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because th- this was in um, the, the VR headset he made, which they called the Sword of Damocles because it hung from the ceiling. Right. Of course it did. Because it was so heavy. <laughs> and of, of course it's a nerdy name. <laughs> as long as as long as you didn't undo the Gordian knot. <laughs> <laughs> then you're totally okay. Uh, but it's funny because this is in 1968, and yet uh, this sounds very, very similar to your pterodactyl uh, adventure yeah. setup. yeah. Yeah. So uh, the technology, it was massive and heavier for a while. Yeah, I think a lot of these displays, too, especially the early ones, you're talking about probably cathode ray tube technology. Mm-hmm. And a cathode ray tube television is enormous. It had to have a space for a vacuum tube in it. That's mm-hmm. the tube part to create the, the energy for the electron gun to fire the electrons that create the images. So, yeah, you definitely needed to have some assistance there to, to carry that kind of weight. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with CRT displays. Yeah. Well, en- enough. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you've ever had to move one yes. and you think, yes, I want to strap this to my face, probably not one of the first things that occurs to you. I don't know. Have you seen my neck? It's <laughs> massive. I know. It's <laughs> kind of like, I was thinking that, you know, that you were just maybe a little angry and went a little hulkish, <laughs> but just in the neck area. I no, wasn't sure. The only thing I work out at the gym is my neck. That's that's good. Well, I, you know, it's it's important to concentrate on muscle groups. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> and then uh, when we get up to 1987, mm-hmm. that's when a guy named Jaron Lanier uh, created or at least is credited for creating the term virtual reality. There's some dispute over whether or not he actually coined it, but he certainly popularized it. Uh, now, he was a computer scientist, still is a computer scientist, I should say, because he's still very much active. But he worked for Atari for a while. And then Atari, I don't know if you know this, Ruben, but in 1983, Atari kind of blew up. Oh, I've, I've, I've read. Yeah. I was, I was not alive. 
I was there, Ruben. I was there. <laughs> I've seen things, Ruben, that I you was, can't unsee. I was a twinkle in my father's eye. <laughs> well, Just a twinkle. When Atari died, uh, you know, actually it was, it was a restructuring and Lanier was let go. And he co-founded a company called VPL Research. And then, uh, he worked there for quite some time. He's also done work for advanced network and services as well as for Microsoft Research. And he's been involved in tons of big technology discussions, not just virtual reality, but Web 2.0, which I think he argued didn't really mean anything. Oh, wow. I think I would agree with him on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it was more of a marketing term than anything technologically oriented. Certainly, yeah. And then uh, he's also weighed in on discussions about singularity and futurism. If you think of Ray Kurzweil as we're all going to be immortal robots uh, and they're going to take over, he's kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, mm. which is interesting because uh, I see a lot of coverage on the Kurzweil side and very little on the skeptical, like, wait a minute. <laughs> Do you really think by 2040 we're all going to be robots? We all like a fairy tale, I think. We want to that pie-in-the-sky dream of putting my yeah. brain in a robot body. Get that Molder <laughs> I Want to Believe poster on our on our walls. Put my brain in a Molder body. Uh, you know, I'll si sign me up, man. <laughs> I'll be a it, beautiful it, man. That is a huge upgrade from where I am right now. <laughs> uh, but Lanier worked with Tom Zimmerman, who's the guy who invented the data glove. Uh, the data glove being the foundation for things like the Nintendo Power Glove. That's so bad. <laughs> the data glove was better. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, he designed the data glove. And then so Lanier and Zimmerman worked together to create some of the early examples of the typical VR hardware that we see today. Like the, like the interfaces, not just the head mounted displays, which mm -hmm. as you've, have you, as you have pointed out, predate this. Mm -hmm. So Lanier and Zimmerman worked together on creating a lot of the hardware that we associate with virtual reality, not just head-mounted displays, which obviously predate their work, but also some of the other interfaces, like how do you actually move around and interact with this virtual environment? Because it's one thing to see it. I mean, a head-mounted display where it tracks the movement of your head so that your perspective changes as you as you look around, that's one thing. But it's still that doesn't still give you the ability to actually do anything in that space. Certainly, like we previously mentioned, the, that one-to-one -one ratio. Uh, it's one thing to like to see with your head and move around, you know, with your eyes. Um, but to actually uh, to try to mimic walking, if it's an omnidirectional treadmill, um, holding whatever you're holding in your hands for yeah. this, and we, so we see more and more interfaces being added on. This is something we see in the Oculus Rift is sort of just one ingredient in the full immersion that they're trying to sell you on. Exactly. Yeah. And this is that's one of the biggest challenges, I think. We'll talk about some of the uh, challenges of VR, but interfaces alone, like how do you get an interface that is transparent enough, not not physically, but transparent enough where you're having a natural experience in this unnatural virtual environment so that it fades away. You, the, the last thing you want is for the user to be hyper aware of the interface. Absolutely. You want that to fade out. Uh, so let's talk about some of the gear. So we've already mentioned displays. Head mounted displays is probably the most popular, although not the only one. There are some displays that are an entire room where mm -hmm. things are projected onto walls or uh, like a sphere where it's projected on the inside of the sphere and you sit down in the middle so that uh, like like a lot of um, uh Aircraft simulation is done in this sort of style. Uh, but the one that we're mostly familiar with, especially if you're talking about a consumer level, is head mounted displays. Because most of us can't convert a room in our house to VR hardware. That's my first question for a realtor. 
Yeah. It's like, is there like a VR room? Is there? Yeah. There, yeah. I, there can't be any windows. No windows. Yeah, no windows. It's got to be fully internal room. A perfect yeah. sphere, if possible. Yeah. Which, that would be that would be ideal. I don't know how you craft it outside of zero it, G. Exactly. But. If it's completely out, of, <laughs> if it's out of true, even by a little bit, it's going to completely throw off my game of Skyrim, and I really, I'm really close to the end. I pull my laser micrometer out. Like, <laughs> gotta make sure this thing's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a little bit, um, uh, well, excessive. I think. Some would say. Yeah. So. <laughs> The the latest version of the Oculus Rift developer kit, you know, because this still, as of the recording of this podcast, isn't a consumer product, Mm-mm. still in the developer phase. But the latest version has uh, tracking dots on it, which an external camera can can track and it'll be able to measure the diff- distances between the different points and thus be able to tell what orientation the mask is on. So not only do you have the tracking technology built into the actual device where it's got accelerometers and uh, that kind of thing to tell whether or not you're looking left, right, up or down, it can actually tell the angle. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I wanted if I'm looking at a virtual table in front of me and I want to see if someone has written something on the underside of the table, I can bend down and look up and it was able to track that change in angle so I can see the underside of the table in the virtual world. Which is pretty cool. It's another one of those ways of adding a level of immersion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oculus has been really careful to say this may not be in the final consumer version. You know, you might not have this external tracking element because it does require even more hardware. You have to have that webcam to, although most computers I think are made with them now. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, it really does add that extra element of interaction. Well, looking under tables is, if you're in a hobo simulator, you yeah. gotta be able to look under furniture to see hobo marks to That's know true. what's going on. That's right. So That's a big one. It's That's important. a big one. It's important. Yeah, I can, I can imagine anything, well, anything where you're having to look around a corner, like, especially <laughs> like survival horror games. I mean, yes, this will yeah. be so useful. Mm-hmm. If you have the guts to, <laughs> to play a survival horror game that fully immerses you, I'm thinking of um, uh, PT, the playable oh, trailer. My goodness, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine if that were in an Oculus Rift situation? You probably, you would probably never stop screaming. It's terrifying. It was, t- it was. I'm not easily scared by by any sort of media. Usually, yeah. that game was terrifying. So I can't imagine like being. You can't like not being able to escape it. Right. Yeah. You can't look away from the screen because no. the screen is directly in front of your eyes, no matter where you look. Yeah. Exactly. Especially if you have three dimensional sound and and uh, a really good um, headphones as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's really going to create. That that incredible experience that is probably going to be unforgettable and not necessarily in a good way. It's interesting. Uh, so we're, again, we're talking about this sort of this ecosystem you have to build around not just the headset, but so the uh, the externally mounted camera. Yeah. So Oculus Rift, they have those points uh, on the front to kind of uh, to inform the environment more of what angles you're looking at, etc. A, a thing they've run into is that they don't have a way to uh, track the back of the head currently. Mm. Not a hard thing to fix. Um, the, uh, Project Morpheus, which is Sony's thing. Right. Uh, because they're using, um, light instead of these little marks, they're using LED lights on the front and the back of the set. Mm. Um, it's actually a way to, if you turn around, the camera knows that you're fully turned around. Not so just it, your vision, but it'll track the back of your head which too. Which, that is, that is a big deal because, mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I was playing with the Oculus Rift, uh, just a, a week ago, um, one of the big issues I ran into is that, yeah, I could turn my head to the left. But if I wanted to actually change the orientation of the character character's body, mm-hmm. I had to use a controller to turn the character to the left, mm. which would then end up creating that disconnect I was talking about. Because that's not the way we normally interact with our environments, right? We don't normally hold a controller in our hands and say, 
well, I need to go to the left now and then push a thumbstick over. <laughs> so it's very disorienting. Something where it can detect exactly where you are, you know, whether in a full 360 degree kind of way, uh, could potentially allow you to actually change that orientation in the game without having to use a controller to do it. So if I turn to the left, my character actively turns to the left. You have to balance that out because do you automatically make it so that the character is moving in the direction you're looking, or do you want to have it so that you can look to the left but still keep running forward, for example? And that's one of the big things in VR, uh, I know, for, for first-person shooter-type games, was the ability to shoot somewhere you were not looking. Yeah. Because up until now, it's always been contained to your vision. Either right. the center of the screen, like most FPSs work, or sure. I want to say like uh, there was like the old uh, GoldenEye actually yeah. lets you free-range your uh, cursor around the screen. Yep. Um, but the ability to... There's actually a great video on YouTube of a guy who's using Oculus Rift um, with a couple peripherals uh, in Half-Life 2 in a shooting range. And mm-hmm. he's doing all sorts of crazy stuff without Like behind looking. the back and yeah. over, the, over the head. I saw one of those where uh, they were using not the Oculus Rift, but a similar head-mounted display and a vest. And the vest was what was tracking all the body motions. Oh, cool. So uh, it actually had uh, sensors that went out to the arms and to the legs. So if you squatted the character would squat in the video game. If you put your hand behind your back, your character would put his hand or her hand behind his or her back. And so it was one of those things that uh, got around that by just taking a totally different approach to the hardware. Uh, of course, then you get into the question of how expensive would it be to exactly. produce a full suit? And uh, would people really want to have something like that? You know, Again, you'd be really aware of that interface, at least at first. Maybe after a while it fades away. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where, again, you don't want the the player to be too too aware of what's going on on a technical level, because then, then they're thinking about that instead of the experience they're supposed to have. And I think that that's sort of the ultimate question that comes in with mass commercial acceptance of VR is, you know, ideally, if you wanted to get the some sort of like motion graph, uh, motion graphic setup, like mo-capping, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would imagine something along those lines, some sort of setup like that would be ideal. Right. A whole array of cameras, um, you're yeah. covered in little balls that say exactly where you are. Yep. Um, but obviously not price effective. No, so. no. I mean, you could maybe have an amusement park where that's something people can go and do as part of the amusement park. Oh man, park. yeah, I'd pay money for that. Yeah. If that's, if that's all it was, yeah. I could be smog for a little bit. Sure. Ugh. I mean, uh, I'd, I'd be jump right on that. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed actually that uh, that's not something you see at say uh, Disney Hollywood Studios where, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's what that, that theme park is all about is about the production of film and television and all the different stuff that goes into it. Um, maybe one day we'll see that. I, I can't imagine that it would be a really slow loading kind of attraction. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the wait time for this is four hours <laughs> and there are three people ahead of you in line. <laughs> well, I'd say like four days based on, yeah. <laughs> if we go to Disney in the summer, four That's hours true. is a normal Maybe, <laughs> maybe you can fast pass it. Well, <laughs> other things like we mentioned audio. That's another really big element in immersion, right? If you mm-hmm. are looking at something, uh, if something's kind of on the right side of the peripheral of your vision, but you're hearing stuff from the left, that's really disorienting. Because mm-hmm. um, first you think, oh, well, whatever that is, there's its brother is right next to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you look and there's nothing there. So you really have to have very good sound design and sound orientation as well. And there are a lot of uh, cool ways of doing that, like binaural microphones, which mimic the way sound goes into the human head. Yeah, I experienced that with, um, we, we were talking about ASMR, which yeah. you just did the podcast on. And right. I listened to it at work, and I have pretty good headphones there. 
And I was just like, oh, this is delightful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> having uh, the sound of someone slowly walking around you while talking. And if you close your eyes, it's like you're there. In mm-hmm. fact, there are a lot of ASMR videos that are uh, about things like a, like a visit to the barbershop. That's a really popular one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have hair anymore, but. I remember when I do. And, uh, and so, uh, so I, there was, there's, there's a lot where it's like the sound of scissors cutting near you. And it's amazing how immersive this is. And that's only one sense. If you close your eyes, it's as if you're there to the point where you can almost imagine feeling it, even though there's nothing physically touching you apart from your headphones. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's amazing how convincing that experience is. So, Sound is really important. So you need to make sure that that is, is well done, just as well done as the graphics, if not more so, I think. Absolutely. Um, as for the interface, that's the other issue we were talking about. How do you let the person explore that virtual environment? Is it a controller? Is it a treadmill? Uh, we talked about there, there are omnidirectional treadmills out there that can allow you to, to actually turn and run and, so that way you're not limited to just forward or backward. Yeah. Uh, I've never tried one. I'm curious about, uh, things like momentum and inertia. And if you, if you run in one direction and then you suddenly need to turn to another one, does it keep going so that you're stumbling sideways <laughs> as you're trying to move to a different direction? Or, uh, I have seen one that looks like, uh, Kind of like a, a, almost like a walk. It's, it's just, yes. you know what yep. I'm talking mm-hmm. about, right? You wear these like Teflon socks yep. on this Teflon surface. Yeah. It's, um, it's meant to reduce friction to a mm-hmm. minimum so that you can just run as if, you know, you, you can do an all out sprint on this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen it. I don't trust myself on it. I just, for that, when I imagine like missing a step and then suddenly just doing a, uh, uh, whoopsie daisy, you know, <laughs> catapulting myself into the air as I fall down and then immediately slide up through the other side, but um, it's an interesting approach to a difficult problem. It know? certainly seems like the most commercially viable version of, of that that I've seen. Um, and yeah, and they, they've built in a bunch of things to like stabilize yourself at the waist and all this stuff. Yeah. But again, like, yeah, the question is just like basic momentum. Like mm-hmm. if, when you're, when you see a runner, like a football runner, sure. um, is that, are that, they called football? They, they, they're called football runners. <laughs> oh yeah. boy. Like that's, a running back on a football team. I was team. Say, like, I'm pretty sure there's at least 17 football <laughs> runners per side and any given, you're asking the wrong guy, Ruben. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, Sports guys, yeah, um, sports ball. Yeah, when yeah. you see guys in sports running, you know that ability to to uh, to juke or quick pivot, like whatever you're doing. You know, mm-hmm. if you're if you're playing uh, Madden twenty billion in the future, yeah. and it's VR, are we going to be able to emulate that sort of uh, ability, that sort of athleticism? Yeah, um, or do you want to? <laughs> yeah, there does come a point where you say, all right, well, how immersive do I want this experience to be? Because uh, <laughs> games are about escapism and there comes a point where you turn the corner on that, right? Where mm-hmm. you're no longer escaping it. You are experiencing it. If you have, if you have managed to replicate the experience to the point where it's indistinguishable from the real thing, then you're really having that experience. So then you're having the question of, do I want that? I mean, like a, a war game, if it were really like war mm-hmm. and not, not some sort of gamification version of war, that would be a pretty traumatizing and terrifying experience. Maybe we'd have less real war. <laughs> Maybe we would. Maybe we would. Maybe people's uh, uh, opinion about the games would change, too. Yeah. They'd say, you know, I, uh, I I get why these other games are fun, because they remove all the the truly negative uh, uh, things of war, and they just make it a, a competition. Like, it's just a win or lose. Mm-hmm. And so the, it removes the ambiguity. It removes all the ethics 
it's it's really all about what's your skill level. But if you were to add that back in through immersions, then suddenly you've got another conversation going on. I truly can't wait till I come home from work and I, I see my student loan bills in the mail. <laughs> and I go, I can't deal with this right now. And I put on my VR headset and I play my student loan <laughs> bill simulator. <laughs> right. And I just like, stress about it in virtual reality. Have you played, you know, this is this is not exactly virtual reality, but it does remind me, have you played Papers, Please? I was exactly thinking Papers, Please. Amazing game. Yeah, because it, it's, 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 uh, it's not virtual reality, but it's immersion. Like all your, all you do is the exact same job a border guard would do. Yep. And you need to do it well. Yep. And fast as and, a border and, guard needs and to. And you have to make some pretty tough decisions based upon mm-hmm. your own family's situation. And there's gamification to it, certainly. Yeah. Uh, but it's pretty, pretty honest to what the experience is, is like uh, yeah. from what I've seen. Yeah. And that's what makes it terrifying and interesting. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And I'm just waiting for the Oculus Rift version of Papers, Please. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we're all gonna we're gonna start escaping to jobs is what's gonna happen. Yeah. It's really just like I just want some other job now. <laughs> like, either, either that, either that's because you don't like your job, or you just want to be able to appreciate the job you have that much more. I've been out of work for six months. Time to put on the cubicle simulator. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'll do this report. Oh my god, this is great. Yeah, oh, here's the water cooler level. I love this level. It's hey, a good Cindy, break. what's going on? Did you see TV last night? Oh, this is great. So, uh, so there's a show called Lost. Yeah. <laughs> Getting back into virtual reality, another interesting aspect is the tactile part. We talked mm. a little bit about that with the user interface, but how do you give feedback to somebody? And in some cases, there is no feedback. It's just like a video game where uh, a video game where you're using a controller where there's no rumble pack. It's there's no physical feedback. It's just visual and audio and that kind of stuff. Uh, but a haptic system does give you physical feedback. A simple one is like a rumble pack in a in a controller. So like uh, you know you. you know, there are a lot of games where if you're bordering on something dangerous, it starts to rumble, mm-hmm. alerting you. It's another way of letting the player know something's about to happen. Um, I've seen a lot of different haptic feedback systems. There are active ones. Those are ones that have motors in them that respond to things that mm-hmm. are happening in the game. I've seen some that were like, it was like a vest that would give you an impact if you got shot. Mm-hmm. And uh, even a helmet that would have little knocking sounds if you got a headshot. And uh, I remember seeing it at CES. They said, do you want to try this on? I'm like, no. Do you want tiny punches to your sternum? Right. Do you do you want a physical reminder of how terrible you are at Halo? No. I I'm pretty much reminded immediately upon logging in. <laughs> All of those twelve year olds tell me daily. Exactly. Uh, twelve, man. Some of them are nine. I know. But uh, th- then you've got passive hap- haptic systems. These are uh, actual physical objects that are in your physical environment that are mapped to the virtual world that you are in. So a simple one could be a chair that's bolted to the floor. So you can't move the chair, but the chair represents an actual chair in the virtual world that if you sit in it, your virtual character sits in the virtual one. Oh, okay, cool. So it could be like the Game of Thrones, and mm-hmm. that's the Iron Throne there. It's really just a chair that's in the middle of the room you're in. Just musical Game of Thrones. Yeah, is what it ends that's up what being. it really could be. Yeah, you just <laughs> the music plays, and at the end of it, a Stark dies. Um, <laughs> but there's also a spoiler. Uh, there's also... <laughs> There's also uh, the idea of having physical objects that you can actually pick up, move, and those are mapped to virtual objects. So the idea is that the things you pick up have a weight to them. They mm-hmm. they have a physical presence. You can actually push them and pull them and pick them up and move them around. And meanwhile, in the virtual world, your character is picking up whatever the virtual version of that object is. So it might be something as simple as like a basketball that you pick up in uh, the physical world. Mm-hmm. But in the virtual world, maybe it's someone's head. 
<laughs> someone's bouncy, bouncy head. A Stark um, head. Yeah, it could be a Stark head. Spoiler alert. <laughs> For those of you who haven't watched season one, don't get too attached to Sean Bean. Um, <laughs> Should we ever be attached to Sean no, Bean? No, no. I mean, I mean, he's he's amazing. But, oh, he's great. But you know immediately, oh. right, what's going to happen. I want them to have a Groundhog Day movie where he just dies a whole bunch yeah, over so and it's over again. Redo The Edge of Tomorrow, but have Sean Bean as the main <laughs> character. Exactly. That'd be pretty fun. Oh, why not him instead of Tom Cruise? It, you know, <laughs> To be fair, though, Tom Cruise was very entertaining in that movie. <laughs> I got to watch it. It's good. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because uh, I know Microsoft actually. Um, so you mentioned like my probably early experience with haptic feedback was yeah. like the Nintendo 64 rumble pack. Right. Feel Star Fox 64. Like, yeah. Whatever the old like 90s video yeah. game. And then you would ads. do a barrel roll. And- exactly. To boost, et cetera. Um, and uh, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things I actually like about the Xbox One, as far as feedback is concerned, versus the PS4, mm-hmm. um, is that they actually went like above and beyond with the the Rumble feedback on that. If you play Forza on it, uh, they put uh, they, there's like the, the things that make the Rumble happen. These little weights that they basically spin at different frequencies or different right. speeds, um, and that kind of will pull different directions or give you different variances in intensity. Mm-hmm. They put some of them right in the triggers, or like right under the triggers. So uh, breaking in Forza is surprisingly realistic feeling. Even though it's your fingers instead of your feet, the yeah. feedback is really interesting. Um, and, and to the other spectrum, uh, there's stuff out there now, like uh, gloves mm-hmm. that you'll put on and they'll, if you're grabbing an object that's round, they will harden or provide right. resistance so that you physically can't fully close your hand because there is that object in your hand virtually and that's really really interesting that's really cool to me it looks like you're wearing like a plastic skeleton hand on top of Mm -hmm. your actual hand because because they have these sort of levered uh, arms that end in rings the rings slip around the ends of your fingers Mm -hmm. so when you are squeezing your hand you're actually pulling against these rings and these and these levered arms that have a usually some sort of pivot in the center and there's a a there's actually a kickstarter for this there's a Kickstarter for a specific glove that does this kind of thing where you map it to a virtual object like a ball. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just like you said, as your hands close in on what the dimensions of the ball would be in the virtual world, those those connections stiffen so that you get that resistance and it feels as if you're holding something. Now, granted, there's no weight there, mm-hmm. but there is that resistance so that you you know, you know f- have the feeling, oh, this weightless ball is in my hand now, which is kind of neat. Um, <laughs> and you pray whatever fail safes are in that glove to keep it from going the opposite direction right, of your fingers. Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it broke every finger I had. I should have known not to pick up that ball. Yeah. Uh, Shouldn't have gotten the dev kit. <laughs> the, yeah. Maybe wait for the consumer version. <laughs> there are other really cool uh, ones that we talked about. You talked about the Sensorama where it was mm-hmm. a cabinet that actually also produced scent. Mm-hmm. Um, then we talked about the Disney the Disney experience. There's also a Disney ride called Soren mm-hmm. that incorporates smells in that. It has three different smells, as I recall. This is trivia for you guys. And by the way, if you ever are in a Disney trivia game, they do ask this question. The three smells are the smell of the ocean, the smell of evergreens, and the smell of oranges. Ooh. Because it's Soren over California, wow. and you go to different environments over California. So Soren incorporates a lot of the elements we're talking about with virtual reality. It's a huge screen that that fills up your your peripheral. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing everything you see is related to a a fly over sequence over California. It blows wind. At you, so that's sort of a haptic feedback. You're mm-hmm. getting a, a, a tactile sensation, um, so you're getting this breeze blown at you. So it it's, it sort of simulates what would happen if you were hang gliding over this space. Mm-hmm. 
You are in a row of seats that is suspended from the ceiling and swoops around as if you are actually flying. Oh, cool. So that's another tactile response. And you get this scent in certain scenes where they, they incorporate the scent in the breeze that hits you. So <laughs> you're flying over an orange grove and you smell oranges. Yeah, flying over uh, Long Beach and you smell medical marijuana for right. 2014. Yeah, you fly <laughs> fly over Muscle Beach and you just smell like tanning oil and, <laughs> and and yeah it, it, you know sure they decided not to go the full route with immersion because it is california but no it, it was really pretty pretty interesting pretty immersive and i don't know of any consumer approaches to trying this because it, it's problematic how do you produce the scents how many would you produce how do you clean something like that so that you don't you know, like everything smells like oranges now. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a little tricky. So I don't expect that this will become something that we commonly see in the in the home market. But you'd have to miniaturize some sort of chemical synthesis. Yeah. Down to like a tiny, tiny packet of a billion mixtures for a billion different combinations that make certain smells. Right. Yeah. It would be impossible. Or you have a really good friend who just has a huge box of stuff and is just <laughs> waiting. And like you say something like. Wow, that really does look like pizza. Oh, pizza, pizza, pizza. Oh, here you go. And then just hold it <laughs> under your nose. I mean, that's really the only other wor- version. Just buy 20 Yankee candles and put them in front of you. Yeah, that's just exactly light them it. at the right cues. <laughs> okay, pizza. I see. That's, uh, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with apple Christmas and <laughs> how's how that pizza? <laughs> <laughs> apple Christmas pizza? I don't know. Somebody's going to do it. Yeah, I'll sign me up. Uh, <laughs> then we have, of course, the sense of taste, which I don't even want to think about. No. I don't, I don't need that kind of level of immersion. I don't there's one game I've played where I'm like, I want to taste what's happening here. Did you ever see the British comedy series Hyperdrive? No. It has Nick Frost yeah, yeah. Uh, in it. He plays the lead character who's a captain of a, of a starship, and it's a very kind of hopeless crew, and they mess up all the time. In one of the episodes, one of the characters has a device that is a glowing ball that you put in your mouth. It's got a cable attached to it and, mm-hmm. it, and a handheld um, uh, uh, interface where you tell it what flavor you want it to be. <laughs> so it's just supposed to be a thing that lets you taste different flavors. And of course he hands it to a friend of his who immediately starts putting in horrible flavors as the guy's got it in his mouth. And never and trust friends. With no, stuff like never. That. <laughs> yeah. But that's one of the big reasons. Like, even if that were such a thing, I can't imagine keeping that clean or wanting to put it in my mouth. Or mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure taste is out. Um, <laughs> And a lot of VR gear, whether it's meant for games, because we think of it in terms of games, but VR has a lot of applications outside of video games. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the gear that researchers in VR use is just repurposed video game gear. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is it's expensive to develop your own technology to do this sort of stuff. And I talked to a VR specialist a few years ago. It was actually when the Nintendo Wii first came out. And she was so excited about the Wii. Because she thought the Wii controller, the Wiimote, was an incredible boon for VR research and was a new way of uh, interfacing with VR. Same thing with uh, the Kinect. Mm-hmm. Huge boon to VR research. So uh, the interesting thing to me is that virtual environments are still very much part of the research world, but they're so dependent upon companies like Oculus making stuff. Because without it, they just don't have the money to go out and develop the technology. You don't want to do a one-off every single time. Yeah, and it's it's sort of, I think, a, a sad reverse that um, the funding for the science usually isn't there unless yeah. we find a commercially viable thing for it. And video games are uh, money makers. Sure. It's super commercially viable. So when we see that stuff happen, it's like, great, we have the tools. Um, but that's, you know, that's been, uh, there's always there's always needed to be something to kind of bring new mediums, new formats forward. 
yeah. video games, uh, you could argue that the PS3 really made Blu-ray take off as opposed to HD DVD because the PS3 had it built in. Yep. And people had that. Um, crazy enough, frankly, pornography uh, is yep. a big boon to a lot of medium formats taking off. There's, there's been Google Glass pornography. Yeah, um, for VR type usage. It's, that's a terrible idea. It's gross. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. Yeah. People, you can see what's on that screen from the other side. I don't know if you know that or not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, but at any rate, yeah, no, we, we had the same discussion. I did a, a podcast, a couple of podcasts with Ayaz Akhtar of CNET, and we talked about technologies that have gone obsolete. And we talked about then that, you know, pornography actually is a, an industry leader. You start to see which standards are going to be adopted because that's the one it moves to one first mm-hmm. and that becomes the standard. And it's odd. It's a know? surprising barometer. If I mean, if you if there's a format war coming up. You can pretty much look at the adult industry as a yeah. good indicator of what's going to probably win out. Yeah, it's it's un- there's almost a full episode there, but I'm not sure I'm comfortable enough doing it. But it is <laughs> lots interesting. Lots of research hours. I'll put it in, John. I'll, okay, I'll, all right. I'll well, that's I'm glad to know you got my back. Yeah, uh, Jonathan. Anytime. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, you've got some interesting things here too about other uses of not just virtual reality but augmented reality, which mm. we haven't really touched on yet. But augmented reality does share a lot of the same features with virtual reality. It's more about marrying the virtual world with the physical world in a way where it's almost like an overlay. Uh, on top of the physical world. So one of the examples I saw was recently at Georgia Tech at their augmented reality lab. And they have um, uh, they have an Auburn Avenue experience mm. where the idea is you you put on uh, uh, or you hold up a display. You don't necessarily have to wear one. It can be on a phone or a tablet or whatever. And you hold it up uh, while you're on Auburn Avenue and it will show you historic views of what it looked like in decades past which gives you this ability to explore a physical space in a new way. And that's something I've always been really excited about. But it is interesting also to see other uh, uh, elements using augmented reality. You have a whole section on augmented reality therapy, which I wasn't even aware of. Yeah, it's a surprisingly um, interesting field for medicinal uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a phantom limb syndrome. Uh, if you guys are unfamiliar, it's basically the idea is um, a lot of amputees, uh, the brain, when you lose that limb, rewires itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, a victim, or not a victim, but a, um, someone suffering from, uh, from being an amputee, uh, they can have these phantom limbs, uh, these phantom limb sensations. Right. They'll still feel the pain of these limbs that aren't there anymore. Right. And there's no way to, uh, to calm this pain or make it better. The limb's not there. Right. Um, you might, might feel an itch mm-hmm. on a limb that doesn't exist. So there's no way you can scratch that itch. Yeah. You can't scratch it. You can't treat it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's been a thing that's been plaguing, uh, amputees since, since it's been in the medical, uh, arena. And uh, so this interesting thing, one of the ways they used to actually treat phantom limb uh, was a mirror. Uh, they would take a mirror and they would mirror it to the limb that you still have. So mm-hmm. let's say I don't have my left arm, but mm-hmm. I have my right. They would mirror it. So it looks like to your brain, even though it's in a mirror and it's very obvious, uh, there's actually an episode of House MD where they do this. Right. Um, and it's actual, like pretty accurate. Um, but the idea is that uh, you trick your brain into seeing, uh, into thinking that that limb is back. And then it can go about, uh, changing those feelings, uh, those, those itches, those pains that you have. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, there's this really, really interesting, um, uh, there's an article in Frontiers in Neuroscience, mm-hmm. um, about, uh, using virtual reality. So you could, uh, you could be an amputee in, in multiple ways, 
uh, multiple limbs missing, and they put on this virtual reality and the uh, your brain being tricked into thinking that you now have these limbs back in this mm-hmm. virtual world. Uh, it's it's been shown to be more effective than drug treatment. Even uh, there is they cited a guy who he had been suffering from phantom limb pain for forty eight years. Wow! Uh, and this is the first time that it felt treated that he was having some relief, which is nuts. It is incredible to think that the immersion can be so convincing as to have that profound an effect on our psychology. As smart as we are, the brain is so easily tricked. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about placebo effect and a whole other thing. Or even stage magicians who Mm -hmm. very much depend upon the things our brains, the shortcuts that we take, where we make assumptions that we have perceived something, even if we haven't actually perceived it. I mean, there are whole businesses, both legitimate and otherwise, that are based on that premise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there's another one. There's a, a burn patient uh, treatment that Loyola University Hospital has been using. Um, and this one's interesting because they basically uh, it's a VR game, but mm-hmm. it's like a VR FPS. But in this case, it's like a first person snowballer, I guess. OK, like the idea is uh, it's a it's a it's a game where you throw snowballs and you're in this Arctic world. And it's not like the graphics. I, I was watching some video of it. It looks like eh, PS1, maybe early PS2 right. era graphics. Um, but the sensation of, uh, being in this world that's all ice and all snow mm-hmm. and you're throwing snowballs at penguins mm-hmm. and it's happy and you're having a good time. They'll put this on patients while they're receiving treatment that's usually intensely painful. Um, mm-hmm. some of the treatments for, for burn patient victims is, uh, like skin stretching is one sure. thing, which is yeah. painful without, you know, having burn wounds. Right, right. Um, and, uh, consistently patients, uh, cite uh, not feeling the pain nearly as much. Uh, some of them even have a little bit of fun during it because they're playing this game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's again amazing. It's, uh, that this one little thing, even with the graphics that aren't that realistic, right? You have this sense of a cooling sensation of not feeling that burning sensation for a moment. Yeah. I've seen that sort of, uh, response from other VR like researchers. I've talked to them and they say, yeah, there are times where you can have graphics that if you were to look at this on a screen, you'd say, well, that's not convincing at all. I mean, it looks like big polygon blocky graphics. Mm -hmm. It's not that far off from the pterodactyl experience I was talking about. Maybe, you know, better than that, but not so much that you'd say it was a, you know, a quantum leap forward. But they'd say this is this doesn't matter if you spend uh, enough time to acclimate yourself to the virtual environment your brain just starts to make those assumptions and starts to actually produce those kind of reactions. And typically speaking, if the latency is low, because Mm -hmm. that's one of the big issues, if the latency is low so that you don't have this disorienting feeling as you move around, it takes about 30 seconds to a minute Mm -hmm. to really start to get acclimated. Which which is so fast. Yeah, it's amazing. It also shows how plastic our brains are. Oh, yeah. That we're able to adapt that quickly. Yeah, uh, there's there's another... um uh, surgeons are using VR simulators even. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, you know, back in the day, you'd have to test on cadavers, yep. uh, which you're only going to have so many of. Right. Um, that can be tested on so many ways before you have to move on to a new one. Right. Um, ideally, hopefully, you're not testing on patients live. Yeah. Um, yep. Which, uh, you know, was happening way, way back. The sure. L- a lot of scientific progress made in that um, unethical <laughs> science. Yeah. Um, uh, but so now we have VR systems that are super realistic um, that surgeons can use can use to train. And it's a interesting, uh, this is sort of related to that. There were surgeons in Florida that they would find before surgery, they would have the surgeons play Super Monkey Ball, mm-hmm. which is, if you haven't played it, Super Monkey Ball is a highly frustrating game where they, the old wood game Labyrinth, yeah. where you put the marble in the maze and there's holes all over. And you had to tilt the maze to move the marble through. Yeah, you have a couple of axes of tilting that right. you can do. Um, it's very similar to that. Very, yeah. very similar. Yeah. 
Um, and they found that surgeons who played just uh, 20 minutes of this before surgery had way steadier hands, much, much better spatial uh, reasoning and abilities. Interesting. Uh, and again, like very, very little uh, of practicing these reflexes in a virtual environment, mm-hmm. giving them the ability to work much better while they're actually cutting you open and doing things inside you. Right, yeah. So there are other uh, ways of using VR in this same sort of sense. In fact, uh, one that I've seen that psychologists have used is immersion therapy for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder or they have a phobia. They might not be able to cope in a real situation where something might trigger that, that reaction. And so to get them more accustomed to it so they can build up to dealing with that in a real world situation, virtual environments have been used to acclimate people to that so that because we have this feeling of immersion, if it's done well, just well enough, it doesn't even have to be fantastic. It just needs to be well enough to convince the brain that you're going through this this sequence of events that normally would trigger a, a negative response. That would be enough to get the physiological response going. So if someone is afraid of heights and you put them in a virtual environment where it looks like they're on top of a building, their heart rate starts to go up, their blood pressure changes. I mean, they actually start to experience the physical reaction they would have if they were encountering this in real life. Mm -hmm. And yet you can reassure them that they are in a safe place. They are on the ground. They are nowhere near an edge of anything. And they can start to allow themselves to acclimate and get used to this and explore. So the first time a patient might do this, they might just sit and look for a little bit and, and tell the the psychologist when they can't, they like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Then they might get to a point where they're moving around. They might get to a point where they're able to walk to an edge. The goal of this is never to you know cure someone. The goal is so that you can move up to a point where the patient feels comfortable enough to actually do some immersion in, in real life. So, uh, with the heights example, after you've done this for a while and done a few therapy sessions and uh, and helped the patient be able to manage these responses, you might take a trip out to a, a building that has a few floors to it and go up to the top floor and allow the person to walk toward the window and then confront this in a real space. And because they've already done it in the virtual space, they're more capable of dealing with that. Mm-hmm. I've also seen it for um, people who are afraid of airplanes where They'll use it to have a virtual visit to an airport and they have the same experience of stress and anxiety that they would if they were to really go in a real place. And then the goal would be to ultimately take them to an actual airport so that they could confront this in in person once they feel comfortable in the virtual environment. Virtual TSA being a top seller yeah. on the Oculus Rift, I'm sure. <laughs> it was funny because the, uh, the VR uh, specialist I was talking to said, yeah, changes in security have made it much harder to deal with this because mm-hmm. in the old days... Uh, you used to be able to go through security even without a ticket. Mm-hmm. Like you could just show up at the airport, go through security, and then walk to a gate. Because then you could, you know, greet people when yeah. they got off the plane right at the gate that they were at. I used to do it all the time. Can't do that anymore. You have to have a ticket to go through <laughs> security. So it makes uh, it makes it much more expensive to treat these kind of things. You have to actually buy a ticket on a trip in order to be able to uh, to go through the security. So. Uh, but that's, you know, a totally different barrier than the VR stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, the military also uses VR not just for training soldiers, but also as part of uh, uh, systems that allow people who are operating vehicles that normally wouldn't have a good line of sight to be able to see around them. In fact, some of the earliest head mount displays were made for pilots so that they could have a, a 360 degree view around the aircraft they were in uh, mm. because 
there were parts of the aircraft that would block their vision, so there'd be no way of seeing through that. Same thing with tanks. I've seen some tanks that have had um, head-mounted displays and uh, external mounted cameras with like a 180-degree field of view so that you can get a real-time... Uh, they, they actually uh, they they stitch together all the videos mm-hmm. so that you can turn around in place and see a 360 degree view around oh, cool. the tank that you're in. Yeah. And that's, you know, any any sort of thing that allows vision like physically is probably going to be a weak point on your craft. It actually reminds me of like Iron Man's uh, heads up display. Sure. You know, that's his entire thing is being beamed into his suit, into yeah. his eyes. Right. Uh, it's all video coming right back in. You know, if he had a big window face, he would be way more susceptible to all those terrible oh, yeah. villain yeah. bullets. Yeah, and if any external cameras went dead, then he'd be blind. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's certainly an uh, interesting approach of using that same technology for something different. As for the challenges of ER, well, the earliest one was that perception problem I talked about, mm-hmm. where... We had Hollywood telling us that VR was going to be the future of interacting with machines, Mm -hmm. that, you know, you weren't going to use a keyboard and a display anymore. You were going to be in the computer program. Uh, My favorite is any depiction of hacking. Oh, my God. Where you would actually walk through a maze. We're in the Gibson. Yeah. He'd turn, turn, (laughs) take a right. And then you see like a skull and crossbones. And you're like, oh, a firewall. And you turn around and look the other way. And you think, this is not the way this works. I got to punch this firewall out of the way. (laughs) Excuse me. Well, I punch the firewall in the face. (laughs) And you also have to wear really off. Like you have to wear like a Hot Topic costume while you're doing it. Yeah, you do. You have to do that. Also, uh, (laughs) just just in case you ever do enter an antiquated system. Just know that no matter what uh, the password is, it doesn't matter. The first two guesses are going to be wrong, and the third one's going to be right. Yeah, so it's um, rule of threes. Rule of three, yeah. Third one, <laughs> oh, that's what, oh, it was his birthday and his uh, dog's name. Yay. I'm in. Yeah. So uh, use a strong password generator is the moral of that story. Not uh, your birthday and your dog. No, don't not you know, not my birthday and my dog either. Cause you can use my birthday and my dog. I know that trick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> latency, again, another big issue. Uh, that is the the thing that can make you feel pretty nauseated pretty quickly if it's not uh, solved. And then that interface, like we were talking about before, if you don't have that fade into the background, it can really become a barrier to immersion and interactivity. So here comes the last little bit of this episode. It's been an epic episode. Uh, <laughs> Ruben, what do you think? You, you think is the consumer market ready for virtual reality now? I mean, I remember in the 90s when it was first coming out, that the whole Virtual Boy era. I remember all of that really well, and it definitely wasn't ready yet. No. Do you think it's ready now? Um, you know, it's funny. I think we're I think we're in the early days of it becoming a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Oculus Rift, the Kickstarter support behind that, I think is proof enough that there's a market for it. Sure. That people want it. I mean, they made multiple times more than what they were asking for. Oh yeah, for. yeah, no, it was, it was one it was for a while it was the most successful Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh if you compare what they were asking for versus what they got, it was 10 times the amount. And I think it's a great uh, it's a great idea, and especially uh, t- technology is is getting there as mm-hmm. far as uh, the visual thing. You can actually they make little uh, headpieces. Uh, Google has a cardboard box. You can put your smartphone in it and get stereoscopic vision to your cell phone. Like we have tiny tiny five inch slabs of LCD or AMOLED, whatever it is, right. um, that are strong enough and fast enough to uh, to produce these virtual images. So I think a lot of our technology for the visions there, the biggest hindrance I think is going to be cost. Mm-hmm. Like the Oculus Rift is actually fairly reasonable price wise. Yeah. But then you get a, a omnidirectional treadmill thing, even if it's just right. that, tef- that Teflon one that's yeah. no moving parts really. 
um, that's still fairly expensive. And it requires space, which means that's another expense Mm -hmm. because, you know, we don't think of it as space equals money, but not everyone has a, a place big enough to have a standing, you know, pedestal. That is just there for, as an interface for a computer game. The first Connect for the Xbox, uh, the new Connect, Connect 2, I guess, has a much wider uh, field of vision from mm-hmm. up close. But the first one didn't, and a lot of game reviewers ran into problems in their tiny New York apartment. Sure, of like I can't, I can't play this game in right. my apartment. Yeah, it, it cuts off all of my limbs because mm-hmm. I'm too close to the camera. But if we even just think about like, uh, so Sony's Project Morpheus, which they have a lot of the ecosystem already there. Yeah. Uh, the PlayStation 4 camera. So not only do you need the, the headset, the mm-hmm. Morpheus itself, uh, whenever it becomes commercially available. Sure. If it does, uh, you need the camera, mm-hmm. you need the headset, mm-hmm. you need at least one, probably of the two, two of the move controllers so it can map your hands. Sure. We're not even going into uh, your lower body. Yeah. And that's that's a lot of and the PS4. Right. So right. we're talking about, you know, about a grand buy in. Sure. Just for the very, very basics. And that's not even a game yet. Yeah. And not even a game for right. it. Right. Um, so I, I definitely think that we're sort of on that cusp of doing things that are reminiscent of the crazy stuff that we saw in the 90s. It won't right. be exactly that, but we're getting closer. Mm-hmm. But as far as like mass adoption, I feel like I'd give us five to ten years. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think. I think on top of that, on top of all the challenges you mentioned, there are other ones that we don't think about as consumers mm-hmm. that are on the back end, like developing for this system, because developing a game that actually works in this environment and is fun and functional, that's a that's a tall order. I mean, you're really talking about the difference between, say, shooting a movie as a regular cinematic experience and shooting an actual 3D movie that was intended to be 3D the entire time. And we talk about 1080p and everything. When you're doing virtual reality, you're splitting. You have to split yeah. your resolution in two. Right. Uh, so that's a crazy horsepower to maintain the same fidelity we have in a single vision. Oh, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So there are, there are some big challenges that we're going to be facing technologically as well as just economically. You know, the idea of do we make the system where it's uh, affordable? Do we make it a loss leader where we're going to try and make it up in the content we create. If we don't sell enough of them, are we going to be able to create the content that will let us recapture the costs? I mean, there are a lot of questions to answer and uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we are on that, that edge where, Oh, excuse me. Let me try that again. <laughs> I don't think we're right. We're there just yet. I think we're right on the edge where it could go either way, where uh, we could either see, some really promising development and thus that pushes consumers to really get excited by it. Or we could have these challenges we've talked about show that we're not quite ready, that there's still some pieces missing mm-hmm. that we need to solve first. And then maybe in five to 10 years, we'll have the pieces there where this will become at least a form of consuming entertainment. I don't, I also don't think it's ever going to become the predominant one. I think it'll always be, a section of the gaming community. I don't think it's going to be like, I can't imagine that the console, the next console in 10 years when the PS4 and Xbox one have completely gone through their life cycle is going to be a head mounted system. Yeah. I think we'll see it as something supported maybe in the next generation as sort of like, it's going to support this automatically. Like 3d was supported for a lot of stuff last gen. Um, I do think gaming is probably going to be the herald of this uh, by all means, but we see like Google Glass with the augmented reality. Mm-hmm. That is not necessarily for gamers at all. There's uh, some there's some filmmakers that are exploring the ability of of making stuff specifically for people to watch while wearing the Oculus, mm-hmm. where 
you you can look around an entire scene and see everything that's going on. Now, that, of course, presents its own series of incredible challenges to the filmmaking industry. Yeah, film the 360 degrees every time, everywhere. How do yeah. you not see the set somehow? Right, right. Not yeah. see, not see like, like the, the, the Teamsters <laughs> <laughs> lounging in the background, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee or, uh, or in the case of, uh, you know, um, uh, other forms of media, just do you, how do you make everything interesting enough to look at? Mm-hmm. Knowing that someone is always going to be looking at that point at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Not everyone will, but you know, it's just like theater in the round. If you, yes. if you set up a theater in the round, you have to assume that someone is looking at every single part of that scene at any given time. You know, even if that's not supposed to be the focus of the scene, someone's looking there. Mm-hmm. So you got to be present and you got to be ready to go and you got to make sure it looks good. And uh, yeah, it has its own huge sets of challenges. I think one of the most terrifying indicators that it is going to happen is you know, Facebook taking them, bu- Facebook buying Oculus Rift, yeah, yeah. them taking such a massive stake in something that you you go, oh, why would why would Facebook yeah. want this? They firmly believe in the integration that it, well, it has, and you know they have a billion users. There's only you know after a while that growth plateaus. Yeah. And then you think, all right, well, we have to diversify. If mm-hmm. we only concentrate on this one thing, we can't grow year over year. And if we can't grow, investors aren't happy. And if investors aren't happy, then we lose money. And then that's a downward spiral. So this is a, you know, this is a big bet for Facebook. And, uh, personally, I hope it pays off because I think it, the future could be really incredible with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I certainly, I'm, I'm, in, I'm enthusiastic about it, even though, my own personal experience was a little, uh, you know, stomach turning. But it, again, I didn't have enough time to really um, acclimate myself. So I think after a little while, I probably would have gotten used to it. Uh, if I can be a virtual sandwich artist <laughs> when I go home, put on the gloves, make yeah. a sub, well, um, I'll be so happy. I'm just going to go right back to papers, please. <laughs> Ruben, thank you so much for joining me today. This Thanks for been having a me. Fantastic conversation. A pretty long episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Ruben, where can people find you? Oh boy. Um, so I guess, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm on Twitter, um, yeah. at Rubots, R-O-O-B-O-T-S. Mm-hmm. Um, heads up, very little things, uh, very few of the things I'll mention here are safe for work. Right. Uh, including my Twitter. Um, but also, uh, you can find me at Dad's Garage. That's where I do most of my theater stuff here in yeah. town in Atlanta. So if you're in town, by all means, come swing by, check out a show. Definitely do that. Dad's Garage is one of my favorite places in, in the city. We're doing a murder mystery tonight that's Star Wars themed. Yeah. Uh, just in case you're, you're concerned about our nerd credentials. Oh yeah. No, um, no, trust me. The people at Dad's Garage are probably some of the nerdiest friends I have. <laughs> I was, I was painting Corellian blood stripes on pants last night for Han Solo. Wonderful. So, um, yeah. Um, also edtomandrubin.com. It's a little dinky site I threw up for uh, me and two guys from dads. Uh, we are doing sketches and podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a podcast called Welcome to Super Basement. Yep. Um, trying to think of how to truncate the description. Uh, how would you describe it, John? Welcome to Super Basement is the story of three friends who inhabit a basement that is so huge that it incorporates everything in reality and fantasy and science fiction all in one. It is completely improvised. It is approximately a half hour per episode where the three friends discover some form of adventure and then go on it. And maybe there's a conclusion. And inappropriate jokes. Oh, yeah. No, it's very much not safe for work, but it's incredibly hilarious. Thank I, you. I, I absolutely adore the show. I highly recommend checking out Welcome to Super Basement if you are 
of an age to appreciate not safe for work humor. Yeah, it's on iTunes, so you can subscribe on there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Ruben, thank you again. Thank you. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have suggestions for future episodes or maybe a request for a special guest host or interview, let me know. Send me a message. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is techstuffhsw, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 